1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Battleground with me, Patrick Bishop, and Saul David. At the time of recording, the very welcome lull in the fighting in Gaza is holding as the hostage-for-prisoner exchange process continues. We'll be turning our attention to what comes next and asking whether the refocusing of the world's attention on the Israel-Palestine problem will bring any realistic expectation of progress on establishing a lasting peace. Helping us answer that question, we have Jason Pack, veteran Middle East analyst, who has his own thoughts on how a start could be made by handing over Gaza to joint administration by a coalition of Arab states.
2: And meanwhile, hopes are rising that the temporary ceasefire may harden into something more permanent. The news out of Qatar yesterday is that Israel and Hamas have agreed to a two-day extension to the current truce, which has seen hostages freed and Palestinian prisoners released. Israel had offered a day's pause in fighting for every 10 additional hostages released from Gaza. More hostages were released on Monday and more Palestinians released from Israeli jails. Further lorry loads of humanitarian supplies entered the Gaza Strip on Monday with food, fuel and medicines being distributed by aid organisations. So positive developments that may very well make it difficult for the fighting to return to its previous levels of intensity. Wouldn't you say so, Patrick?
1: Well, we can but hope, Uh, but Gaza is a tinderbox. It'll only take one rocket fired into Israel, one wrong move by Hamas for the whole might of the IDF to come crashing down on the place again. Uh, It will in a way be a test of how much control the Hamas leadership has over its followers, so we should counsel against too much optimism. But Israel's got to show restraint too, hasn't it? At the start of the war, the IDF chief of staff, Herzi Halevi, said that the political chief of Hamas in Gaza, that's a Yahya Sinwar, and those under him were, quote, dead men walking. Well, so far as we're aware, Sinwar is still alive, and so too, it seems, is Mohammed Dayef, who's uh, the elusive leader of Hamas's military wing, the Izadin al qassam Brigades. Um, the assumption is that they're hiding underground, probably in Khan Yunus, that southern city, the biggest city, second city after Gaza City, really, uh, where Sinwar, I believe, comes from. But ceasefire or no ceasefire, I think if an opportunity to take them out arose, I imagine the IDF would be sorely tempted to take it, which would return the situation to the status quo ante. Wouldn't you think so...
2: Yes, and there are good reasons why Israel might think that is no bad thing. For the time being, they have what they refer to as a window of legitimacy. That is, there's enough political support from the White House in particular and from the UK and Germany for them to keep going with their mission to destroy Hamas. Now, of course, this is limited because the next step would be to move into southern Gaza, where the likes of Yahya Sinwar are likely to be hiding. This would inevitably involve yet more civilian casualties. The number of deaths currently claimed by the Hamas Controlled Health Authority is running at 14,500. And if the numbers rise further, that will shrink and pretty soon close the window. Ceasefires in previous Israel reprisal operations in Gaza have come essentially at the behest of Washington, and that is likely to be the case again. Joe Biden has been a resolute supporter of Israel thus far, but he's got an election coming up. The US, of course, is more than just a vocal supporter of Israel from the sidelines. Biden has sent two aircraft carriers and one US marine expeditionary group to the region to warn Iran from letting their Hezbollah proxies off the leash. Foreign entanglements are not popular with American voters. And with Biden trailing Donald Trump in the polls, a man whose foreign policy message is very much against American involvement in other people's war, the president will be under pressure to bring about a speedy end to the fighting.
1: And the problem then, of course, is what happens next to Gaza. The Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, is facing two options at the moment, both of them unpalatable or politically difficult. One is that having pacified the place, the IDF then stays on indefinitely and holds it as hostile territory with a steady stream of casualties inevitably on both sides and equally inevitably ongoing damage to Israel's reputation in the world. The other is to hand the administration of the place over to the Palestinian Authority, who run the West Bank. The first would be unacceptable to the Americans. I think it's pretty clear they wouldn't really give support to the idea of sort of parking their their forces there permanently. And the second uh, is going to be anathema to Netanyahu's extremist coalition partners, who he very much has to listen to. Well, To discuss all this and try and perceive a way forward through the fog of war, I turn to someone who is well-placed to shed some light for us. Our guest today is Jason Pack. Jason has 25 years' experience studying the Middle East. He's a senior analyst at the NATO Defence College Foundation in Rome. He's also the co-host of Disorder, the brilliant geopolitical podcast which tries, very successfully in our view, to make sense of a very disorderly world. Like our own battleground, it's co-produced by Goalhanger Podcast. Welcome, Jason. It's a pleasure having you on.
0: And great to be on one of my favorite pods.
1: Well, our focus today is Gaza. Um, I want to start off by saying that since the beginning of this conflict, or well, this phase of the conflict, people have been saying this is different. This time it's different. There have been numerous flare-ups over the over the years, do you share that view that somehow this is qualitatively different from what's gone before?
0: I do. Obviously, since the Heat Nut Kut, which is the unilateral Israeli withdrawal in 2005, there have been rounds of tit-for-tat fighting and ceasefires and even some hostage-taking like with Gilad Shalit. But this started with essentially a pogrom, you know, the break into Israel, the pillaging, the rape, the mass hostage-taking. And of course, the Israeli response or overreaction, depending on how you look at it, has been different not only in extent, but even in kind from, say, Operation Protective Edge in 2014. And hopefully, given all of this carnage and tragedy, people are going to think out of the box because the extent and different nature of this conflict might lead to more creative solutions.
1: Yeah, well, that's something we're going to come on to later, because that's very much the focus I wanted to talk to you about. But before we get on to that, you're in London at the moment, Jason, as I am. And it seems to me that uh, one element uh, in which way this is different is is that uh, this is a particularly emotive event, isn't it? I mean, it always is. Israel-Palestine does summon up passions that aren't present in other conflict. But it, my understanding, or the way, the way I look at it here in the UK is that this has opened up a front in the culture wars, hasn't it? It's an issue that people kind of almost define themselves on. Is that how you see it? And also, from your knowledge of the the states, is the same process happening there?
0: 100%. I love how you put that. There are two or three wars going on simultaneously. One is the tactical fighting in Israel-Gaza. Another is the fighting for global media opinion. And then maybe there's how those two things interact On a third dimension, which is global geopolitics, my thesis that we live through this enduring disorder is that all conflicts, be they climate change or issues of tax havens or developments in Ukraine or in Gaza, all interact. And then they have an implication for the likelihood of the Chinese making an action in the South China Sea. And one of the phenomenons that makes this quite different than, say, Protective Edge in 2014 is the way in which people consume their information on Twitter and TikTok and the amount of Russian misinformation that's out there leads to all these completely bizarre and competitive narrative about neo-colonialists and genocide and all of these things making this media dimension very, very different than anything that's happened before.
1: Uh, getting back to the States, um- until now, historically speaking, Israel could always count on, uh, I won't say the unconditional support of Washington, but certainly very solid support from successive U.S. administrations, be they Democrat or Republican. How long do you think this trend can continue?
0: This is a great question, because it hits at more than just, oh, have some people on the neo-populist right, like Vivek Ramaswamy, and have Others on the post-colonial left, like many of the student protesters, come to question the U.S.-Israel relationship. No, it's about much more than that. It's about the breakdown in consensus foreign policy making and the core tenets of how America engages with the world. And that, again, is part of the global enduring disorder whereby Trump, for example, questioned many of our core alliances like, oh, we're going to withdraw from NATO or we're going to force NATO countries to spend more money. And that really, really worries me. I don't believe that giving Israel carte blanche is the right approach and we need to use American support for Israel to give tough love and pull them away from their worst impulses and force them to accept various compromises. But I don't think that that should be a partisan issue between Republicans and Democrats. We should have a sane approach to protect U.S. strategic interests in the Middle East, which a McCain-style Republican and a center-left Democrat should be able to share, rather than it being a culture war issue. But what has happened, and Trump seized on something that actually predates him, because Obama was initiating this withdrawal from American hegemony and American ordering of the disorder, Obama is kind of the first president of the enduring disorder. Trump exacerbates it. And Biden, although he wants to throw back to the period of American leadership, he inherits a very fractured DC beltway space where there are these partisan approaches and many people don't want consensus American leadership.
2: Well, that was fascinating. Do join us in part two for the rest of Jason's thoughts and in particular, his radical plan for administering post-war
0: Gaza. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? and some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.
2: No matter what you're looking for in a non-alcoholic beer, there's only one name that has it all athletic brewing co full flavor it's athletic huge variety it's athletic award-winning styles you can get online at the bar or the grocery store it's athletic in fact when it comes to amazing non-alcoholic beer there's no question it's athletic ask for it and find out go to askforathletic.com to find your closest retailer today near beer
1: Now, we're going to move on to possible uh, solutions that you referenced uh, at the beginning. Um, Before we get on to actually thinking about how to rethink uh, diplomatic solutions, you've got some interesting thoughts, haven't you, about what actually happens physically in Gaza when the dust settles, which I believe it probably will sooner rather than later. And you've got some rather kind of uh, left-field thinking on that, about how Gaza could be restored to some sort of point of stability where governance and normal life could resume. Can you tell us about that?
0: Sure. I mean, I'll take left field thinking uh, as flattery, but yes, I'm trying to think out of the box. One of the problems in any large bureaucratic institution is you have plans sitting on the shelf, whether they're the Schliffen plan that your listeners will know about, or for example, a whole range of Arab Israeli peace initiatives, but then a new crisis happens and you default to the pre existing plan. What I see Biden as doing is defaulting back to the plans of the Bill Clinton years, which is, oh, Oslo style two state solution. America supports a Palestinian authority. The Palestinian authority governs some areas of, you know, the West Bank and Gaza. And then we move forward until they have more and more administrative authority and we get to a two state solution. I think that that doesn't work. The Israelis have defaulted to their pre-2005 thinking, which is an indefinite Israeli occupation of Gaza. Like we can't trust Arabs to do our security because look, they did this. We need to just occupy them. Well, that's not going to work because it's going to cost Israel billions and billions of dollars. 10 to 20 people are going to be killed every month and they're going to, you know, really lose the media war. So we need a new solution. And to my mind, that new solution should use the fact that the Middle East is in a very, very different place, not only since the Abraham Accords, but the failure of the Iran deal. And we need to get on the same page, all of the, for lack of a better term, orderers in the region, and unite them against the disorderers. And I think that the opportunity for creating post-war governance in Gaza can be a way to get disparate American and Western allies on the same page so I call for a pan Arab condominium, particularly of Egypt, Qatar, the UAE, and Saudi to administer and have suzerainity, although not sovereignty, over post war Gaza for a medium term period, say five to ten years, which would then culminate in elections.
1: What about you referenced the Oslo Accords and you know this is based fundamentally on the old two state solution? as it was known, a lot of voices are saying that two-state solution has had its day. It's never going to work now. And they're talking about a one-state solution. Now, for our list, many of them will know what I'm talking about, but for those who don't, that's basically the idea that you create a unitary state uh, on the territory between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. Essentially, the old British mandate uh, Palestine and in that you have the various options of what you can have but a sort of confederation or a sort of two autonomous areas inside those boundaries etc cetera, etc cetera. all sorts of formulas are possible but basically uh, Palestinians and Jewish Israelis living together in some sort of um, polity that would reduce the existing sort of uh, demarcation lines and and make them you know all live together in some sort of arrangement where they felt they had a degree of control over their own affairs, but were living side by side with their old enemies. Now, do you actually see that flying? I was surprised to see that it's actually got quite a lot of support pre, of course, October the 7th uh, in Israel itself. Do do you actually see that as a way ahead?
0: No. If pigs had wings, they could fly. And this is more pie in the sky than, you know, any other possible solution. The desire of both peoples is for their own self-determination in their own states. I don't see this as an idea which has much support. Many left-wing Israelis who express support for it or Palestinians who express support for it don't grasp what it means. It means the abnegation of their kind of national self-determination. So um, I don't even think that that's worth engaging with. What I wanna pivot from here is, I'm not advocating a two-state or a one-state solution. I'm only focusing on the medium term. I see a problem in our discourse, not only in the media, but in policymaking circles as well. And I'm briefing State Department and FCDO and some MPs and Congress people. And they're focused either on the hyper short term. How do we get this aid convoy into Gaza? How do we get this hostage out? Or the hyper long term? Is it a one state solution? Is it a two state solution? You know, if pigs had wings, they could fly. I want to focus on something which is achievable, such as When the war is over and Netanyahu withdraws his troops, what happens immediately then? And that's a day which is only some number of weeks or months away, right? We're not going to have peace in the Middle East on that magical day in January when the troops are withdrawn. So we need some kind of administrative medium-term, costed and well-thought-out plan. And mine is to have some kind of peace conference in Doha, whereby a coalition of Arab states is ready to step in and they have much more administrative capacity than the Palestinian Authority would have. And they also have monetary ability to give scholarships to Palestinian high school students, to rebuild infrastructure, to set up hospitals, but then also to use technological and administrative means to, for example, demilitarize the strip. And I don't see any coherent Israeli or American or Palestinian plans that would be moving in this direction. And it's worth noting that over the weekend, Egyptian President Abdel Fattah Sisi said in a meeting with the Belgian and Spanish foreign minister that he sees some kind of pan-Arab condominium administering Gaza. So when I was saying this before the war, it was seen as pie in the sky. Then other people were saying it. Then you heard Thomas Friedman and Brett Stevens giving their iteration of this idea, but excluding the Qataris. And now even Egyptian President Sisi is echoing some version of this idea.
1: Yeah. Is there any precedent? Can you think of any historical precedent, not necessarily in the Arab world, uh, where something like this has worked?
0: Ha ha ha. I mean, I've been asked that on every program that I've been on. (laughs) And and of course, the Anglo-Egyptian condominium over the Sudan was not a great success. And the theory of joint military occupations has not worked. But, you know, you're a historian of World War II. What about the way in which there were French, American, and British zones in occupied West Germany? There was a deconfliction between them. It didn't not work. So I think it's not impossible to have a either victorious army or a neutral third-party force. But what I'm thinking of is actually much more akin to, like, when there are UN peacekeepers and there are many such examples of un peacekeepers but there is no un you know administrative capacity that works the un is a broken institution the russians or the chinese would veto anything so we need a pan arab solution that bypasses the un but yes you know mea culpa i cannot think of an exact historical parallel
1: yeah i mean the immediate problem that strikes me is that would would this be acceptable to the israelis you know it would be essentially the status of Gaza is a very sort of confused question. For example, you know, even sort of pan-Israeli, pan-Isra- pan-Zionists, if you want to call them that, are sort of conflicted about whether Gaza is, is part of Israel, etc., etc. But nonetheless, from a security point of view, to have a pan-Arab suzerainty, as you put it, over Gaza is going to raise all sorts of hackles, isn't it, Just purely on the security front to start off with? And then there are sort of other considerations as well.
0: Well, I see that as an advantage, actually, because it'll raise the hackles among Netanyahu and Ben Gavir and Smotrich, who all need to be out of the government. And if the plan can be delivered in a way that it has some sticks, like no more new settlements in the West Bank, but tons of carrots, like, guess what? The Israeli trade office is being reopened in Doha, and we are restarting the Israeli-Saudi peace negotiations with the idea of delivering them prior to the 2024 American election. And I think that that's possible, getting that deal done so that Biden can go to the polls having that deal done. And then, oh, what do you know, we're having this $10 billion of American investment in the Israeli high-tech sector, and these billions of Qatari and Emirati uh, exchange programs and infrastructure rebuilding programs in Gaza. Those numbers may seem large, but they're entirely reasonable. If you consider the amount of aid budget which we're spending on the wars in Ukraine, as well as some military assistance to Gaza, people are going to reach into their pockets, and you can solve this thing. I just think that we need creative and multilateral thinking, but I want to expand to explain why this is possible for Israelis. The problem that the Israeli leadership has seen on the right and the left is they have difficulty getting a coalition of other states who want to contain Iran in the way that they wish to contain Iran, and they feel that they need to be out in front against Iran and Iranian proxies like Hezbollah and the Houthis in Yemen. Well, what my plan proposes is to get those states that work with Iran, like Qatar and Turkey, and to some lesser extent, Oman, to all be on board with this and to essentially create an axis of orderers against the disordering powers of Iran, Russia, Hezbollah, the Houthis. And that would really, I think, assuage Israeli regional fears.
1: What about China in all this? I mean, we've seen China play a positive role in the region with the Iran-Saudi accords earlier this year. Do you see them as being players in your plan potentially?
0: Great question. I'm, I'm not sure that that was a positive role in the region. It was scooping the scraps from the Americans' table to humiliate them. My thesis of the global enduring disorder posits that some players don't have an alternative world order. And bizarrely, even though China is the number two global player, they don't have a comprehensive vision of order. And that's why I see them as largely absent from the world's hotspots. If you look at the top five hot wars in the world, from Ukraine to Syria to Yemen, to my expertise of Libya to now Israel, Gaza, the Chinese are not really present. They're not on one side or the other, and they're not mediating. And I explain this by saying the Chinese don't mind if some war is going on elsewhere because they don't mind living in a disordered international system so long as they can export their wares and the West is off their back so they can deal with the Uyghurs or, God forbid, Taiwan or Hong Kong protesters, however they want. So they're happy to be in a disordered situation where the Ukraine and Gaza war continues almost indefinitely. That said, I don't think they will block a solution either. What about
1: the role of Europe in all this as well? I mean, Europe often professes itself aspire to be a, a kind of global player. Um, it's endless sort of discussions about having its own sort of security apparatus, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Now you know historically we, Europe has very strong connections with the place, particularly the British and the French. Do you see them bringing anything positive to the party in the in the current circumstances, or a way for them to actually do something constructive?
0: Well, that's a crucial question because Biden is perceived as having given "quote unquote" too much unconditional support to Israel, so the Europeans need to be a counterbalance to that. Um, I had a great conversation on my pod on Thanksgiving just a few days ago with Alessandro Politi, the director of the NATO Defense College Foundation, where I am a fellow. And what he essentially said is, what if the Europeans stepped in to give security guarantees to Saudi and the Emiratis against the Iranians, because the Israelis are going to have to get an American security guarantee? And I think that that's a genius idea, because the traditional thinking is that America would underwrite both sides. But no, why, why do it that way? Why not, you know, work in a more transatlantic way? Because we don't know what Trump's policies will be. We don't know the tremendous uncertainty that could evolve in 2025. So what if we could have a quote unquote coherent UK EU approach, which would counterbalance the American approach and would give security guarantees to our Gulfy allies and I have to say, from his mouth to God's ears, because I think it's a very elegant solution.
1: From what you've been saying, uh, it seems to me, Jason, that you're pretty much of an optimistic cast of mind, looking at this, all this dreadful no, suffering. I'm not. And-
0: I mean, I, I would word it differently. I'm someone who lived in Jerusalem for three years, in Damascus for two and a half years, in Libya for a year, And I've been kidnapped three times and been at bombings, both in Iraq and in Jerusalem. My heart bleeds for both sides. And I think that things are going to get much, much, much worse before they get better. But my job, as I understand it, as a think tank pundit, is to actually propose solutions. Unlike all these journalists who just report on, oh, this is a mess. They did this. This is stupid. If people like you and I can't be proposing solutions, then who's going to do it?
1: Yeah. And no, I'm saying that in, a, in an admiring way. I think it's brilliant the way that you're actually sifting through the debris and trying to find some way of building back. So, you know, bravo to you. And thanks very much for your fabulous uh, podcast. We urge listeners to check it out. And it was great having you on this show. And hopefully we'll be talking to each other again. All the best. I don't know what you made of that, Saul. Um, you know, lots of lots of fascinating stuff there. I would say that I thought Jason was just a wee bit dismissive of the one-state solution. Indeed, more than a wee bit, as he was pretty much we just knocked it out of the park, didn't he? Just didn't really, I think, it had any sort of validity at all. I think that's a little bit premature. I mean, I think you know, it's interesting that today Egypt came out and said that it's got to be a two-state solution. This is the uh, options still accepted by the international community on mass but i mean you know it's pretty obvious you don't have to be a great middle east expert to see that it's it's had its chance it's been around for you know decades and it's failed to progress at all so i think it really is time for a radical rethink and there are plenty of options for a a, a one-state solution on the table, there are all sorts of variations on the theme. You know, there are kind of like autonomous areas. There are, you know, they're going back really to the original mandate plan of just having a unitary state in which all citizens, be they Arab or Israeli, are equal. And I, I you know, for me, it, it seems it is time to really shake the whole thing up and, And look at it anew, and try to 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 rally some sort of new international consensus, like the one that got behind the two state solution. What do you think, Saul?
2: Well, you're much taken with the one state solution, aren't you, Patrick? (laughs) And uh, I liked, uh, or at least I was struck by Jason's description of it as pie in the sky. I mean, you know, he's he's got a lot of experience out there, and he doesn't think for a second that either the Palestinians or the Jewish Israelis have any truck for that as a possibility. It's a kind of left wing idea in israel but in jason's opinion isn't going to get majority support from either the israelis or the palestinians
1: proportion among palestinians i mean like 33 34 percent i mean they're quite hefty numbers i mean if you if you who knows how how public opinion is going to change after all this it could very well harden on both sides or you know who knows there might just actually be uh, a pause for thought when people do start thinking. Look, this has got to end somehow, and we've got to find new ways of doing it. I'm sorry to to switch roles and be the super optimist here, but uh, you know, I, I think it's it is something that needs to be examined closely, and and not just to be sort of crushed uh, at first mention. But you know, who knows? Well, it's certainly well, very very interesting to study public opinion in the weeks and months ahead.
2: Well, he was optimistic up to a point. I mean, you asked him if he felt optimistic. He doesn't feel particularly optimistic um, with good reason. I mean, I don't think anyone should be optimistic. But putting forward ideas that might have some uh, credibility is another matter. And I I actually was quite struck with his own idea. So he rejects effectively the one-state solution. He rejects going back to the Oslo-style two-state solution, not fit for purposes, he pointed out, not least because the Israelis themselves, or at least those in power at the moment, have already defaulted to the uh, pre-2005 thinking, which is, of course, indefinite occupation. That's Clearly, as you've already pointed out on the pod many times, Patrick, uh, not going to run either. So what about what he is suggesting? I mean, I quite like the sound of this Arab condominium. Now, okay, lots and lots of things to work out. But the broader point here of having the involvement of the Arab nations, which many people have been calling for, um, he's talking about a kind of midterm solutions. So they get involved for five to 10 years, then you have elections. I mean, ultimately, of course, uh, if you really want to look at the brass tacks of all of this, it is going to lead to a two-state solution. Uh, It may not be the one that was envisaged in Oslo, but ultimately, of course, it will lead to a two-state solution. Um, But in the medium term, it's going to involve investment uh, and a, a kind of regeneration of the Gaza Strip and obviously also the West Bank. That sounds very encouraging to me.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's right. I'm, I'm, I'm again, you know, g- given that his proposal is 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 rather kind of forward thinking and radical, um, that he's so dismissive of the of the one state solution. But anyway, that's my own particular hobby horse at the moment, it would seem. But yeah, I think it would be it would be a really positive development were the Arab world to get involved in a very in a formalized way in post conflict Gaza. As you were saying before, Qatar is very much at the centre of this, uh, the hostage for prisoner deal, very much at the heart of the whole cease- ceasefire process that's going on at the moment. And of course, never forget Egypt. Egypt has been crucial in all the previous 21st century conflicts in Gaza, in bringing about an end to the fighting and sort of managing events thereafter. So they clearly they've got a very big role to play. So to bring in other Arab states, you know, positive thinking Arab states. Uh, I think would be a step forward and you know, maybe clear the way for some more radical thinking about an ultimate solution.
2: Going back to the possible one state solution, Patrick, are you are you imagining, uh, or are you envisaging, possibly with your Irish antecedents at the forefront, that uh, we're we're talking about a potential Northern Ireland here? No, no two scenarios are are the same, of course, but we do have the very unlikely scenario at the moment of both the Protestants and the Catholics uh, in Northern Ireland under the same sort of political system, albeit with you know their own guarantees and their own sort of role in government. Is that that the sort of thing you are imagining for Palestine?
1: Uh, I think it would be more, you know, like I said, there are lots of variations that are in the mix there. Um, But I think you probably have to look uh, a bit closer to home, perhaps north to Lebanon, where they've got a not dissimilar situation. When you've got competing uh, religious groups, you've got competing traditions, Christians, you've got uh, Shia, you've got Sunni. Uh, you've got Druze, and they've all managed to uh, not not without enormous problems, and not without a civil war at one point. It has to be said, but they have managed to shake down into a very complicated uh, political arrangement with with a complicated system of, of power sharing, essentially where offices are held in turn by uh, various religious representatives if you like or parties that represent that particular ethno religious group in Lebanon so something like that that's one model another model is a kind of geographical model where you have kind of autonomous areas this sort of create every every, every solution creates a, a set of particular problems, individual problems, small managerial problems, if you like. And of course security is, is a big one, you know, would Israel ever really, would, would, would the Jews of Israel ever really uh, surrender their security policy or share their security policy with the Arabs? You know, that's obviously a very thorny question, but you know, anything is better than this this current cycle of atrocity, revenge, atrocity, revenge.
2: Okay, well, we've already uh, taken up a fair bit of time. So we've only got time for a few questions. The first one is from Mark, enjoying your commentary on the Gaza conflict. How did the Ottomans keep the peace in Palestine for 400 years is his first question. Uh, And the second one is, was the staging of the supernova event with its sounds and lights so close to Gaza provocatively insensitive? Well, let's split these up. Do you want to do the first one, Patrick, or the second one?
1: Yeah, I'll do the the first one. Well, the Ottomans, as is often the case, Saul, don't you think that we look back on what were regarded as rather kind of reactionary uh, empires, I'm thinking of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Ottoman Empire, and they now often look, perhaps with uh, the old rosy-tinted spectacles uh, firmly in place, like sort of havens of uh, tolerance and uh, peaceful coexistence. So the short answer was, although the Ottoman Empire was an Islamic empire, The Ottomans basically let their subjects follow their own particular religion as long as they didn't challenge the political authority in Constantinople. So basically, it was because it was such a a large domain, they didn't really have the, the means to police religious groups if they wanted to or different ethnicities if they wanted to. So they basically, it was a kind of live and let live arrangement. There weren't the Jewish population of, of uh, Palestine uh, was very very small in those days. It was mainly very elderly or very religious uh, Jews who'd gone there basically to die. So, so there wasn't any kind of economic conflict. There wasn't any power struggle going on there, and so peace did prevail for for centuries, as you rightly say, Mark.
2: Yeah, I don't don't think we can return to that, but there probably are one or two lessons we can learn. And it should also be pointed out, actually, Patrick, you're right. There weren't enormous numbers of Jews in Palestine at that time, but there were in Iraq and other uh, cities under the control of the Ottomans. And they had, like everyone else, um, religious freedoms to a greater extent. So, yeah, very good historical comparison. I like that. Um, Moving on to Supernova, sound and light so close. Was it insensitive? I mean, I don't know, (laughs) kind of underlying what Mark's kind of implying there maybe not an ideal scenario looking back in retrospect but that's not the reason the uh you know the atrocities took place it was a kind of uh pro- bad timing i suspect for for the supernova event frankly an event that's just a music concert to even suggest Mark that in some ways that was provocative I I think that's probably going a little bit too far and certainly the atrocities committed there to a lot of young people who were just there enjoying themselves is it was completely unacceptable and beyond the pale so mm, I sort of see what you're getting at but I don't really think you can you can blame the organizers to any great extent.
1: Uh, Now a question here which is I think going to be posed increasingly uh, in the coming weeks and that is about the validity of the casualty figures being quoted by the Hamas-controlled Gazan Health Authority uh, for civilian casualties. Jerry in London asks, uh, Hamas have been consistently quoting 70% of the Palestinian civilian casualties are women and children. He asks, where are all the husbands, fathers, sons, etc.? The only theory I can come up with is that they are protected in tunnels underground. I am curious as to why the figures are skewed this way. Keep up the good work. Many rely on you for their news. Well, that's good to hear, Jerry. Well, this is a thorny issue, isn't it? I mean, quite a lot of research has been done on this because these figures are put out um, every couple of days by the Gazan Health Authority, and they've been challenged not only inside Israel, uh, but also by President Joe Biden himself, who said uh, recently that, He had no notion that the Palestinians are telling the truth about how many people are killed. He didn't actually provide any evidence for that skepticism. But there are a lot of people who do take these uh, numbers pretty seriously. The UN is one of them, Uh, Human Rights Watch, a very respected organization. Both say they don't really have any reason to disbelieve the figures released. And there have been attempts uh, to check and verify the numbers they've put out. After Biden made that statement, the health ministry did provide a list, I think of about 6,000 dead people, essentially, with their names, their ages, their sex, and their ID numbers. Uh, do we believe those uh, that data? Well, people have tried to check it, and it seems to hold up. So, you know, I think this is something that we're not going to resolve in the heat of war, um, but a large number of respected figures who tried to cross-check that data coming out with the ID numbers and names, et cetera, against visual imagery of body bags, et cetera. And so far, it looks pretty legitimate. So um, I look at those numbers with a slight degree of caution, but I by no means dismiss them out of hand. My feeling is, and from the evidence of previous wars, that they may not be precise, but they're pretty much in the ballpark.
2: You're far more trusting than me, Patrick. I, I doubt very much they're that accurate. The Hamas, of course, controls the health ministry and has every reason to exaggerate the claims and uh, also, which is the point Jerry was making, to to exaggerate the number of civilians, uh, particularly children who have been killed. Having said all of that, thousands of, of civilians and children are obviously being killed. Is it the exact number they give? My broader point here is it doesn't really matter, does it? Thousands are being killed, and that's more than uh, is acceptable. So yes, almost certainly there's an element of propaganda going on. But uh, on the other side of the coin, far too many civilians are being killed by the Israeli action. So make of that what you will. Of course, people are are going to jump on the idea that there's a possible exaggeration in these figures to, to try and diminish them almost to nothing. And I think that's going way, way too far. Uh,
1: and I've got one here from Tom Petch, who I believe uh, you know, Saul. Um, and <laughs> yes. Tom's really going over, over some of what we were talking about earlier on, about a single-state solution. And uh, it's just interesting to hear what he he says as an ex-soldier. He says, he I served in the British Army in Cyprus, Cambodia, Bosnia, and Northern Ireland. All of these had some version of a multi-state solution, which required the presence of international forces to police them. Now, that's something we didn't touch on, but of course, that would almost certainly be an element in any proposed single-state solution, and indeed may be the case in Gaza as well. He says, on the ground I found views so entrenched, it would have been impossible to find another way through, uh, i.e. having some impartial force to, tra- to try to sort of police and enforce the political settlement and this is something I remember very well he says uh, for example the Bosnian Serbs started every negotiation by explaining the field of blackbirds that was uh, Kosovo Polje it was called a battle between the Serbs and the Ottomans fought in 1389. And this is no exaggeration, honestly, any, any conversation with a Serb said, well, you've got to go back to Kosovo Polio before you can really understand what we're facing here. So uh, yeah, I, I remember that very well, Tom. Um, he says, I cannot believe the last round of fighting between Israel and Palestine will have done anything but make it much harder to bring those two sides together how do you know tom
2: i just met tom through tom's written his own book actually recently he was british army and then later in the sas and he's written a book about um the sas and the second world war actually i i don't i don't think i'm giving away too many secrets to say that tom i hope not um, but yeah, he's, he's, he's got good experience of all of this. And it's interesting, his point, I think it's sort of, you know, what's it backing up? He's saying a one-state solution is very difficult. Multi-state is probably the best you can hope for. But he goes on to say, actually, at the end of his message, um, he thinks there'll be an opportunity driven by international public opinion for the involvement of Egypt and Qatar and possibly other Arab states to get involved. Could they broker a longer-term solution is his final question. Well, of course, this comes back doesn't it, to Jason's suggestion that there is some kind of pan-Arab involvement. I mean, I think we both agree on that, don't we, Patrick, whether it's one, uh, you know, maybe we're getting too, too sort of locked into the specifics of these terms, one state, two state, multi-state. Um, but the fact is, the rest of the Arab world, we need them to get involved in this not to be a kind of US-driven uh, solution, because that simply won't
1: work. Yes, indeed. Okay, well, there's going to be a massive amount of discussion about all this. And the days ahead so that's something we'll be keeping you abreast of that's all we've got time for this week do join us on friday when we'll be returning to ukraine in the meantime could you please uh, if you've got a chance click follow when you're getting onto the pod Uh, that means you'll be updated to all the new developments on the podcast lots of exciting things coming in the new year so uh, do remember to do that if you can goodbye